For more on Europe and both its economic and strategic situation, we have two guests. Charles Kupchan is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and he's also a professor of international affairs at Georgetown University. Hello to you. Hello. And Adam Posen is president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Uh, Happy New Year to you as well. Great New Year to you, Tess. Uh, Adam, let's start with you. We've already been talking on the show about the part of the world that, you know, I think the average American would assume our foreign policy should focus on uh, unstable areas like the Middle East. But really, the economic relationship with Europe is hugely important, isn't it? Can you give us a rough picture of just how much trade happens between the U.S. and Europe and, and why the U.S. really can't afford to neglect that relationship? The trade and, more importantly, investment and financial relations with Europe, Tess, are bigger than any other relationship save that with Canada and Mexico. Um, This is partly just geographic logic, but it's more because our savings are wrapped up in their businesses. Their businesses and savings are wrapped up in ours. You know, you think of Chrysler Fiat, which is a joint Italian-American company. You think of products in your store. Unilever, which is a joint Dutch-Anglo company, is the biggest Mm -hmm. competitor to Procter & Gamble. So half the soap you buy is from us and half the soap you buy is from them. And... (laughs) Their banks are very big with us as well. So overnight lending between banks, which is what people in the financial sector worry most about when that breaks down, that goes on on a huge scale between the banks in London, Paris, Frankfurt, with those in New York and elsewhere. Well, you know, I mentioned instability. And of course, right now there are large swaths of Europe that are facing enormous economic challenges. You have Greece, Spain, Ireland, Italy, and on and on. So I don't know, can you make the argument that If things continue that way, you could have security issues, Charles Kupchan? Well, I think we've already seen unrest, civil disobedience in almost all the countries that you talked about. But I think the the light is beginning to flicker at the end of the tunnel. The EU has outlined a vision of a banking union, of a fiscal union, of a set of steps to get them from what is still, I think, the dark days of the crisis to a better place. They're not there yet. There are huge political obstacles ahead in terms of realizing the deeper and more integrated union that is now on the table. But I think that at the beginning of 2013, one can at least see a pathway to a more stable and prosperous Europe. We could not have said that if we were in this room a year ago. Right. In fact, there was even talk of the possible dissolution of the union. Well, as that light flickers at the end of the tunnel, uh, outgoing Secretary of State Hillary Clinton spoke recently at the Brookings Institution, and she outlined the need for for a free trade agreement uh, between the U.S. and the EU. Uh, Adam Posen, as we heard earlier in the program, this idea has been batted around since, uh, I think, the, the 1980s. Anything happening right now to make you think an agreement could actually come to fruition? It's a little more likely now than it was a few years ago. And obviously, when Secretary Clinton says something, it carries weight. The Germans in particular, the German government, but a few other people in Europe have been more eager to do this than the U.S. That's partly because their economies are more dependent on trade than the U.S. and partly just their politics are more open to trade than the U.S. But I think there's a feeling growing that The rich countries of the world, the countries with high labor standards, the countries with strong regulations should be joining together to make more of a coherent market, not even just to 
bring trade benefits directly, but to put them in a better bargaining position vis-a-vis, say, China um, or other emerging markets who have lower standards. And in particular, China has been able, not on a huge scale, but in, in meaningful ways, to play off the U.S. and your EU on trade issues against each other. So the U.S. tends to support Boeing as an airline manufacturer and the Europeans tend to support Airbus. And at times, China's been able to get, say, well, if you won't give us technology, maybe the other one will, and create a very big-ticket trade deal. And it's kind of like when New Jersey and Delaware are fighting over a convention center. They sort of bid each other down to lowest common denominator. (laughs) So a lot of the free trade agreement could happen, but it's going to be motivated as much about the world around the U.S. and EU as within the U.S. and EU. Did you just compare the U.S. and EU to New Jersey and Delaware? (laughs) Okay, New Jersey and Pennsylvania. I'll upgrade. (laughs) Well, Charles, I mean, what do you think? There was certainly, uh, it took a long time to get uh, the NAFTA free trade agreement passed. Uh, Would we see the same sort of pushback here, do you think? I don't think it will be easy in the sense that the United States and Europe are both passing through a difficult time economically. And historically speaking, it's difficult to get trade agreements through during downturns, in part because you have people, let's say, in the industrial Midwest who see free trade as a threat to manufacturing jobs, and mm-hmm. that, that will affect the attitude of Congress toward this. On the other hand, it's clear that President Obama wants to use foreign policy as a tool to stimulate economic growth, and one way to do that is through free trade. The other thing that I think is going on here is that this is not just about economics, it's also about political and strategic ties. And in some ways, in the aftermath of the war in Afghanistan, the NATO operation in Libya, folks on both sides of the Atlantic are saying, what's the next big thing to keep the Atlantic community together? And one answer to that is to deepen our economic engagement through a free trade area. And I think that's that's a big piece of this discussion. I just want to return back to the security question for a moment. Um, and, and Charles, maybe you could address this. You know, the, the first term Obama administration saw NATO intervention in, in Libya, and I think that was widely viewed as a success, um, you know, Libyan rebels taking down Muammar Gaddafi. Are we likely to see more actions like that over the next four years, do you think? Well, I think that the NATO operation in Libya was, was interesting and a precedent of sorts in that Europe finally took the lead. And one American president after another has been saying to America's European allies, why do we always have to hold the bag? Why don't you guys get out in front? And finally, in the Libya case, it was the Europeans who led the diplomatic effort and then who flew the lion's share of the combat missions over Libya. I don't think that it is going to set an example for the future for a couple of reasons. One is that Libya was very close to Europe. And therefore, Europeans could fly combat missions from bases, and it was easy to get there. Uh, When you talk about Syria or other places much farther away, it's much more difficult for Europe to carry out those missions. They don't have the assets that the United States does. And secondly, I I think this is going to be a period of what I would call quiescence or limited activism Uh, within the Atlantic community because everyone is so focused on the domestic front. President Obama Mm -hmm. was really re-elected on, yes, it's time for nation building at home. So I don't think that NATO is going to be looking to pick any fights. The one 
issue that I think we all need to keep an eye on is Iran. And I think it's completely conceivable that there could be a war against Iran in 2013. If that happens, it's going to be very divisive within the Atlantic community, for there isn't much support for that war in Europe. Well, Adam, let me ask you to, to kind of pick up on that uh, as a last point here, that, you know, what Charles was saying about these countries, uh, both in the EU and here at home, needing to focus internally. And that seems to be a question that's coming up a lot right now, you know, given all these problems that, you know, here in the U.S. we need to solve within our own borders, the economy, a government that seems incapable of making any big decisions. Are we a credible leader in foreign policy? Certainly having a weaker economy and, as you point out, a lesser ability to come together and make decisions makes one less credible in all your commitments. But I want to pick up on something Charles was saying and in the spirit of what Secretary Clinton, I think, was trying to do, which is there is a historical precedent both in the U.S. and in various European countries, that you use international commitments to put you on a stronger, more disciplined path. You use international commitments to get you to look beyond your current problems. And so in the pure literal resource sense, Charles mentioned assets. You know, it's not like the mm -hmm. U.S. is going to go on a military spending or possibly not even a foreign aid binge in coming years. The idea that you can turn around and say, gee, we're going to have a free trade area with Europe, we're going to have to upgrade certain standards in the environment. These kinds of things can be actually a stimulus to a more positive economy. One of the things you can argue in favor of what's happened in Europe and recently, they have used external pressure to get Italy, to get Spain, to put their house in order. And maybe international commitments can help focus the U.S. Congress and president in saying, don't squander our role in the world. You actually have to take care of business at home because our role in the world matters. Adam Posen is president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics, and Charles Kupchan is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and a professor of international affairs at Georgetown University. Thank you both, gentlemen. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Want to learn more about the foreign policy challenges the U.S. is facing? Visit our website, americaabroad.org, and check out our past programs and exclusive web features. Or search Facebook for America Abroad and like us.